Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, here are some statistics for you on this Monday morning. Did you know there are more seniors in this country than children under the age of 14? That actually happened officially three years ago. So what that means is that there are a lot of us out there involved in caregiving, not just for kids, but for the older people in our family, friends and circle as well. One in four Canadians older than 30 say they are already providing care for someone in that category. And another one in three expect they are going to be doing that in the future. That's a lot of people who are juggling caregiving responsibilities, and that takes a toll. And here we're hearing that the numbers are going to go up even higher. The majority of those people are looking after their parents or in-laws. That's 52% of the people who are doing the caregiving say it is their parents or their in-laws. So we want to know for our hot question of the day today, Are you providing care for an older relative? Do you currently provide that care? Do you expect that you're going to have to in the future or do you not expect to do this? You let me know. You can email us or email me, simi at cknw.com, but go online and vote for our hot question of the day today. It is at simisara980 on Twitter, also at cknw. We're going to be talking more about this Angus Reid Institute poll, uh, hoping to get them on to discuss and break it down even further to take a look at that kind of emotional burden that so many Canadians are struggling with right now. This, these caregiving day-to-day responsibilities that so many Canadians have for older relatives or friends, for that matter, just somebody that you know that you are providing care for. Are you one of those people? And what is that like? Are you currently providing care? Do you think you're going to have to in the future? Or maybe you don't expect to. That's what we want to know for our hot question of the day today. Send me Sarah 980 or at CKNW. And if you want to tell me your story too, because I know many people out there uh, have a story like this, uh, give us a call at 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. There's a whole host of people out there that, that are called the sandwich generation. And they're called that because they're the ones that are kind of in the middle. They've got older parents that they are now looking after, and they've got kids as well that they are looking after, and they are in the middle, hence the sandwich generation. We've known that was coming for a long time now, and we're kind of seeing it really take hold. So if you want to weigh in, let us know your story. Please do. Well, is it possible that we are actually going to see some ride hailing in this province? It feels like it was one of those things that we were going to talk about forever, but it wasn't actually going to materialize. And now we hear this morning the official announcement from the ride hailing company Lyft saying that it will operate in Metro Vancouver and they expect to by the end of this year. However, they are saying that the NDP government's requirement of that class four commercial license means that they will not yet be able to operate in other parts of the province. Let's break this all down now. Is this a win for the government or do you think, I don't know if everybody's going to be happy about this yet. Let's talk about it with Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so it's actually going to happen. Well, yes, but we don't know how widespread it's going to be. Even Lyft, uh, 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 in its announcements today, acknowledges it may be a challenge to find enough drivers with Class 4 licenses uh, to meet what could be a considerable demand for ride-hailing services in Metro Vancouver. And interestingly enough, they're only confining their operations initially to Metro Vancouver, not the Okanagan, not over here in the capital. Uh, I do think, actually, ride-hailing is a much bigger issue in Metro than it is in, in other jurisdictions. But uh, I think Lyft blinked here. They had said a few months ago, if the Class 4 restriction or requirement stays on the books, we don't think we can operate in BC with that type of restriction. Well, uh, the government has stuck fast to its position that this was a deal breaker for them. And I think Lyft has, has blinked here uh, because I think they see the Metro Vancouver market as so lucrative, potentially lucrative, that uh, even with a, a sort of smaller number of class four drivers, 
they still think they can make a, a go of it in the marketplace. But I don't think you're going to see a radical uh, difference anytime soon. This is supposed to start in the fall, but we still are waiting for the passenger transportation um, board to set the boundaries over where where um, taxis, these ride-hailing services can operate, and also how many licenses can actually be held right. by the company. So there's still a lot of I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed here before we get to a full market model of ride-hailing. Right, because the boundaries issue, that's the big one, right? Because that's really mm-hmm. what's prevented many taxis for, pro- from providing the kind of service that people want. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's the uh, inability to, you know, uh, drive someone to Delta and then pick someone up in Delta and drive them back to Vancouver. That's uh, The boundaries are very restrictive. Uh, the taxi companies have been very protective of those things. So each municipal taxi fleet really guards its territory with very jealously. And ride-hailing can't really function with those type of restrictions, at least true ride-hailing. It'll be a challenge for the board to come up with some minimal boundary restrictions that do give uh, operators like Lyft, and we think uh, Uber as well when they come in, some elbow room to really sort of amplify their services in a way that ride-hailing companies operate in other jurisdictions, whether it's you know Toronto and Ottawa or, or any U.S. city. So the other thing out there about this, uh, so we have to go back to last week's announcements by Uber, which announced a staggering $5.4 billion loss yeah. in one quarter. Now, a lot of that was just stock uh, compensation, but still, these companies are losing massive amounts of money. And I've, you know, the New York Times is now questioning, can these, these companies continue to exist, losing this type of dollars on such a massive scale? And when they keep saying, oh, the, the, the light is just around the corner, no evidence of that yet. So Lyft may be coming in, but you have to question how much longer Lyft and yeah. Uber can continue to survive. Right, because one of the things that has made them attractive in all these other jurisdictions is it's a cheap ride. By the time it gets here, it sounds mm-hmm. like it's no longer going to be a cheap ride. Well, you know, we've had in the United States, in 10 cities uh, this year, Uber um, drivers have gone on strike because their pay is so low. And every I've been doing some... Uh, up, reading up on some of the analysis of these companies, two, uh, two things have to happen. Either drivers' wages go down, which and they're already down. These are not full-time jobs. Uh, and this is one reason why I think you've seen the NDP government so slow to, to accommodate this industry, because it does not pay people very well. These are not full-time union jobs with benefits. They're low-paying jobs and part-time jobs. So either drivers' wages go down to even lower levels, or prices go up. And the, the, you're quite right. The attractiveness of ride-hailing all along has been the relative Absolutely. cheapness and, and availability of the fares. Well, it's, it seems purely from a business model uh, point of view, fares have to go up and not down. And so the chief attractiveness of ride-hailing may start to ebb away and ultimately disappear altogether. Right. So even though there's still all these questions, though, Keith, can the government, in particular the Transportation Minister, who hasn't had a good time of this on this file, <laughs> at least say... Oh, okay, no, it's coming. Now we know for sure it's coming. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a win for uh, for the NDP government. Uh, they stuck to their guns and saying it's we're going to have class four, daring the companies to say, you know, they say at first blush it's a deal breaker, saying, well, after you look at the numbers, maybe it's not a deal breaker for you. And I think right now the NDP can say, well, we stuck to our guns. We're going to get our way. We're going to have uh, what they consider to be safer ride hailing services because of the requirement of class four drivers, but. We'll see how many Class 4 drivers there ultimately turn out to be, how many of these ride-hailing cabs actually turn out to be, and whether or not really the landscape changes that dramatically this fall. I still think it's going to be a slow adjustment. You think so, even though people have such high hopes that we're not going to notice as big of a, a change, perhaps, as people want? I don't think you're going to see the type of ride-hailing availability that you see in major North American markets uh, here because of the Class 4 requirements and, again, because of the, the ongoing financial problems that seem to plague these, these companies such as Uber and Lyft. But, you know, a start is a start. And if the market, again, this is what drives uh, these, these services, if the market proves to be lucrative enough, I think Lyft and Uber will find a way to incentivize drivers to get Class 4 licenses because if they see money to be made, they're going to try to make it. Right. Also, I didn't understand why a lot of taxi drivers who don't own their vehicles or own their licenses didn't say, like, yeah, I'll go work for them. They've already got the Class 4s. Yeah, and that that may still happen. I mean, Lyft may still be, uh, you know, 
work in the industry here, talking to people, trying to collect as many of the already qualified drivers as possible. But again, uh, money talks. Can they make as much money working for Lyft as they do for other companies? We'll see when the boundaries are determined. I think that's going to be a big one. And also how many licenses are actually going to be allowed by the Transportation Board. That's, that's always been a, a, a touchy subject. It's, it's a, a, covet, a taxi license is always a coveted one. Yeah. And it's gone up in value tremendously over the years. And that's the other thing to keep an eye on. As Lyft and Uber come in, what does that do to the taxi licenses that some operators pay pretty hefty amounts of money for? Do they go down in value as ride-hailing becomes much more widespread? Right. And so when will all the, when are these next steps going to happen, right? September 3rd, they're opening yeah. it up, but then what happens after that? Well, September 3rd, and then we, then we wait for the boundaries from the commission, and there's no indication that's going to come down necessarily in the fall. Some of the taxi associations on Twitter have been saying they've been told that that's probably not going to happen until the spring. Uh, which again means a slow evolution here, I think, for uh, for ride hailing services to really get uh, boots on the ground here. But uh, Lyft says they intend to start sort of getting everything in order for the fall. But I still don't think we're going to see a real transformation or any noticeable difference. It sounds like probably until the new year. But there will be something available, one assumes, in Metro Vancouver sometime this fall, albeit not on a widespread basis. Right. It's not like they're going to have as many cabs out there as yellow you know, Vancouver taxis or McClure's or Bonnie's. Right. Okay. And so that's just Lyft, though. We're still waiting for the official word from Uber as well. Do you think this puts pressure on them now to do this? I think Uber will be making an announcement very shortly that uh, they're going to be coming in. Um, and uh, with uh, they seem to have less objection to the Class 4 requirement than Lyft does. Lyft was really leading the charge here against Class 4. I don't think they're going to stand down their, their opposition to the Class 4. I think they're going to continue with their campaign against it. But uh, in the meantime, I think they, they realize Metro Vancouver is the biggest market in North America that does not have ride-hailing, and you might as well get in there, under, even under restricted circumstances, and see what can be done uh, and try to work the market from that perspective rather than just saying, well, we're going to boycott right. you. So I think Uber's going to be coming in here as well. So, Keith, it sounds like what you're saying is don't get too excited. I wouldn't get too excited just yet, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens next spring. If there's a rush of people wanting to take uh, to pay the money and the, the cost of, uh, and time uh, to get Class 4 licenses to work part-time, then, um, yeah, we could have a much more widespread uh, availability of ride-hailing services. But I think it's going to take some time to get to that point. These All along, this has been a baby step process, yeah. uh, unlike other jurisdictions. And it's, you know, it started with the B.C. Liberals in government, B.C. NDP in government. Neither of them really fond of this. The taxi industry is a pretty formidable political lobby in this province. It has a, seems to have a magical spell over both the NDP and the B.C. Liberals. And that spell's not going to go away just because Lyft put out a news release today. Right. All right, Keith, thank you so much for that. Anytime for me. Take care. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, responding to the news that Lyft has officially said that, yes, they're going to go for it. How did it happen? How did one of the most well-known prisoners in the United States manage to kill himself, even though just last week he was on suicide watch? There are so many questions about the death of Jeffrey Epstein, who was being housed in a high-security Manhattan jail, and politicians of all stripes are demanding answers. Attorney General William Barr in the United States said today that there were, quote, serious irregularities at this Manhattan federal jail where this happened over the weekend. He said he was appalled by Epstein's death and fired a warning shot to anyone who may have been involved in the wealthy financier's alleged crimes. This sex trafficking case was very important to the Department of Justice and to me personally. It was important to the dedicated prosecutors in the Southern District of New York and to our FBI agents who investigated the case and were preparing it for trial. Most importantly, This case was important to the victims who had the courage to come forward and deserve the opportunity to confront the accused in the courtroom. I was appalled, and indeed the whole department was, and frankly, angry, to learn of the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. The FBI and the Office of Inspector General are doing just that. 
we will get to the bottom of what happened, and there will be accountability. But let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice, and they will get it. That is Attorney General William Barr. You know, what was so frustrating about this case was that it finally seemed to be getting the attract, the, uh, uh, the attention and the, uh, you know, the really traction that it needed in the court system to have something happen after so many years of watching it fall by the wayside, even though there are all these rumors about what was going on. To talk more about this story now, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, who's our global news radio producer in Washington, D.C. Hi, Reggie. Hello. Let's give people an idea here about this case. Why is it getting so many headlines? Well, it depends on which side of this you're looking at. If you're either looking at it from the instances that are alleged to have taken place, uh, you know, more than a decade ago, it's because this is being recently brought to light. And if you're looking at the instances that have been charged within the last couple of months, it's because of the situation that's going on right now with the death of Epstein. That said, it is a big story right now. There's a lot of questions that remain unanswered. There's a lot of victims out there who feel they're not going to get any kind of justice right now uh, based on the alleged assault that they say took place all these years ago. So there's there's the reason that's in the headlines right now is because there are now more unanswered questions that could very well go unanswered as we go down the road. Right. And this is a man who had a lot of famous friends. The current president was a friend. The former president, Bill Clinton, was also a close friend. Heck, Prince Charles's brother, Prince Andrew, was a friend. It was. He was somebody who, well, this is the thing, is that he, he grew up in a kind of a, a poor life and didn't have any money. And as he met this associate of his, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, she was somebody who grew up uh, overseas with a lot of money, with a lot of wealth, with a lot of connection to power. So all of these friends to him came via this close associate of his. And that's why he was able to kind of wine and dine with all of these big names around the world, like you said, including a prince, including uh, big uh, uh, political names in the U.S. and big names that kind of lived around the world. So there are a lot of ties and a lot of connections to Jeffrey Epstein that kind of stem through one associate of his. And that's where some of the questions are, are, are kind of pointing right now as to what does this associate know and where can we find her? Right. Because and the reason why this case was back in the news, because he had gone through a legal process, what, like 10 years ago, but he got a very sweet plea deal. And all of a sudden that was back in the news. And didn't the president's uh, secretary of labor have to resign because of this? Absolutely. He did. So when Alex Acosta was the then U.S. attorney in Florida, he's the one who signed off on this deal, gave him 13 months behind bars and was allowed to leave six days a week to go to work. So there was questions about that as to what kind of deal is this when somebody has been accused of, of uh, assaulting dozens of, of young girls, potentially underage at the time. Uh, and this came back to light when Alex Acosta was appointed to the U.S. Labor Department and uh, as the secretary and eventually said that, look, I can't continue on in this position right now. It's clouding the department's work, so I need to step aside. And in stepping aside, it kind of opened up a whole new uh, kind of book uh, on these allegations that were facing Jeffrey Epstein, especially since he was back in jail, uh, which has kind of led us down this road as to where we are now with him not being alive and the questions surrounding all of that. Right. Okay. And right away, it seemed like when this news broke, Reggie, on the weekend, all of a sudden the conspiracy theory started. Well, it, it, yes, we knew that potentially there would be a conspiracy theory just based on the sheer number of people that Epstein had been associated with. But it was the simple fact that the president was using his w official Twitter account, which he says speaks for himself, uh, to to kind of push these conspiracy theories forward up to and including things that the Clintons uh, may have been connected to this death because there's a potential that they could make a link to Bill Clinton's time that he used to spend with Jeffrey Epstein. So we have the president of the United States perpetuating these conspiracies out there, and we know that his Twitter feed is often followed very closely by those who are very into what the president has to say. So this is a very dangerous path right. that we're heading down right now when it comes to these conspiracies. Right. And yet it seems like nobody was immune because there were lots of powerful men who spent some time with this guy. There were lots of powerful men, and we're seeing a lot of Democrats that were these powerful people that were spending time with Jeffrey Epstein. So there is some questions. There are some questions uh, linked to uh, the, the conduct that was taking place inside Epstein's uh, facilities and homes that were around the world on one of the islands that he had owned as well, uh, where Prince Andrew is said to have gone and where a couple of uh, 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 former governors and former politicians were said to have frequented as well. But those are one sort of, uh, set of questions that people are looking at. The other set of the questions has to do with the victims. 
victims that have alleged that they were assaulted by Jeffrey Epstein and how they're going to be able to move through, uh, through this, what they're going to be able to do. And if Jeffrey Epstein's kind of opaque finances that we he was holding on to for all these years, if it actually amounts to what it is and, and how these victims are going to be able to go after his estate. Right. And so this isn't an end to this case. No, absolutely not. This is going to continue on. We know that criminal investigations are going to continue. The ones directly surrounding Jeffrey Epstein uh, disappeared with his death. But there will be other con- uh, uh, criminal investigations that are linked to co-conspirators, especially uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, that close associate of his who is said to have been a recruiter for him. So those investigations will continue. The civil investigations are going to continue into his estate. Then there's going to be this kind of opened book here as to all of the potential connections uh, that had... Uh, that had links back to Jeffrey Epstein, because just because he's dead now doesn't mean that everything dies with him. Uh, there's going to be questions. There's going to be further investigations. And this is something that could potentially have a lot of people shaking, thinking that they were going to be off the hook once he died. Oh, that is so true. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Radio producer in Washington, D.C. Let's talk about some caregiving issues, shall we? Because there are many, many people in this country who do that. Not only do they look after their kids or themselves, their homes, their jobs, all that kind of stuff. They also look after perhaps aging parents or aging relatives. A new poll by the Angus Reid Institute has taken a deep dive into this issue, the challenges that it presents, the concerns we have, and all those sacrifices that we're making to make sure our loved ones get the care they need. Now, we also want to hear your story on this, so we are going to be taking some calls coming up in a few minutes. But right now, let's talk to Dave Krasinski, who's a research associate at the Angus Reid Institute and who was involved in this survey. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, No problem, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Taking a look at the numbers that you guys turned up here, it certainly does show what a huge impact caregiving is having, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, and it's becoming more and more of an important issue in Canada and generating more attention because of uh, one of the interesting trends, actually, that I opened the piece with is that you know, three years ago, for the first time uh, in Canada's documented history, we had more Canadian residents that were seniors, uh, so 65 and over, than we had children 14 and under. That's the first time that's happened. It just kind of quietly passed. Um, but if you're paying attention, it really does, it's, it's kind of a, a high watermark for, for this trend of skewing uh, an older population. And what's coming alongside that is that you've got a lot of people, particularly in the 40 to 49 age group and that 50 to 59 age group, where almost 3 in 10 are providing care for somebody um, in addition to, you know, any children that they might have right. in their own, you know, some people are providing uh, care for their spouse. Most, about half of that group, are providing care for their parents. So it's aging parents that are, that are a, a big concern in Canada. And you see, actually, when you look at the percentage that are anticipating that, that to be the case within the next 10 to 15 years, it's, you know, 45% of, of those in their 30s and 44% of those in their 40s. So it's a, an issue that is only going to get more prominent as the population continues to age and, and more and more people are involved in this. Yeah, that is a huge number there. So are, did you get any sense, Dave, from doing this? Are people doing this because they want to or because they have to? Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's it's easier uh, for them uh, to do so from a financial standpoint. And the reason I say that is when you look at the people who are really um, heavily involved in this uh, and are are majorly uh, impacted by it. So this is the group that say that it plays a big part of their life so that they're, you know, they have to take days off of work and cancel appointments. This is a, a really well-documented trend in Canada now that policymakers are paying attention to. But if you look at it, it's actually four times higher among those with incomes under $50,000 in their household than it is among those with incomes over $100,000. So they're much more likely to be uh, burdened by this type of care. Uh, and I think a lot of that is financially. Certainly a lot of people are, are uh, they like to help out their, their parents or maybe uh, their spouse if they can. They're doing it from a place of love. But uh, certainly, if they can afford to, a lot of people will, you know, get some sort of live-in care or move into a home uh, to just kind of facilitate right. a more easy transition into old age. Right. And so who is it that is being looked after here? Is it the parents? Yeah, it's primarily the parents. If you look at the, the numbers who say that they're, they're caring for somebody, 52% of caregivers say that they're taking care of their parents. 
and that jumps to 76% in that 40 to 49 group, and that's that's that group that's most likely to be providing care. So that's the prime areas, 40-year-olds who are, are taking care of a parent or in-law. Um, you do see a significant number of people who are over the age of 70, however, 55% for them are taking care of a spouse or partner. So that's the one population where it does flip away from uh, a parent relationship to right. uh, a spouse. Did they talk about uh, how this is having an impact on their lives? Um, we didn't get into specific details, but I know uh, anecdotally, um, one of the big things that's happening for people who are caring for, particularly with parents, um, is that a lot of people, the the biggest problem uh, that they're having is having to take time off of work. Um, and, and you know, th- these calls come at inopportune times and you have to run off. And there's, there's actually an estimate put out by CIBC uh, earlier this year that said that the cost of aging for or, or caring for aging parents uh, to the Cana- Canadians, both in terms of what we pay and the loss in terms of productivity from everybody taking time off and the, the spin-offs of that, is about $33 billion. So there's a big, a big uh, impact there for people who are taking time off work or canceling appointments or, you know, just losing a lot of that free time that they might have had, which is increasing stress levels and, and leads to... Right you know, more adverse health effects. So it is a, it's a difficult kind of spiral for people who can't get the, the care that, that they wish that they could or can't get the help that they need. And what do you think this tells levels of government, uh, especially like the provincial government, the federal government? Do these people need help? Yeah, I think it's certainly the more support would definitely be something that uh, Canadians would be amenable to. We didn't um, ask that question specifically, but I think uh, we feel pretty comfortable kind of saying that a lot of people would be open to this idea. Um, when you look at healthcare issues, Canadians are generally very generous. Uh, Pharmacare, for example, where you've got one in five people uh, of this age, 55 and older, who can't access their, their prescription drugs. You've got about 90% of Canadians who say that they support creating a backstop for, for those people in terms of a universal pharmacare system. So I think that um, there's a, a lot of, of programs that Canadians would support just in terms of helping those families out, subsidies or um, even respite for people who are involved in, in heavy caregiving and, and are unable right. to kind of take some time off. Right. And just to recap that, Dave, you did see a difference in depending on how much money, like how much income was in the household. Yeah, yeah. The, the lower income um, issue when it comes to all of these healthcare issues, these are people when you separate it out by, so it's 50000 and under for a household income, so a low-income family versus that fifty two hundred and one hundred and over. And when you look at that top bracket compared to that bottom bracket, you see, you know, three times the likelihood that you're going to have major access issues when it comes to just accessing medical services. And it's uh, four times as likely that people who are involved in caregiving are facing what we would call um, a heavy burden from that, like the, the highest impact in terms of uh, disruption to their day and the amount of time that's allocated. It's, it's considerably higher for people who are in low-income households. And did you see any kind of warning signs there, things that we need to, hey, maybe pay attention to? Um, I think that one of the, the biggest things overall is just that this is not something that is going to improve without action. It's actually uh, just based on the projections and the trends. It's only going to become more and more of an issue. Um, so, you know, when you, when you look at some of the strains on, on the medical system, they are, they're happening all over the place in terms of doctor shortages and in terms of these prescription drug issues. And caregiving is, is really uh, no exception to that. Uh, there are a lot of people who would like to, to get into care. We ask people actually thinking about um, your own issues, which would you prefer if you could no longer live independently? And 42% of people say that they would like to have a live-in nurse. 21% say that like, they'd like to move into an assisted living facility. Um, only 10% say that they'd be more comfortable living with family. So uh, these services are going to be in very high demand, and the population con- continues to get on average older and older here, um, just as baby boomers are, are continuing to age out here. That was a good stat, because the one that scared me, the number there that you didn't mention, is that 26% said they didn't know. Yeah, they really they hadn't you know, thought about it. a little it. too early to tell. The 30-year-olds, it's hard to get them to commit. Uh, and one of the interesting trends, I don't know if, if you have to go right away, 
Um, but one of the, the really interesting numbers there is that the older Canadians get, the less likely they are to say that they'd like to live with family. So for whatever reason that is, when you go up in 10-year 10, 10 increments, the number who say that they'd like to move in with family drops and the number who say that they would like to live in their own home for as long as possible, perhaps with live-in care, increases across every population. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Younger people would like to move in with family, but the older they get, the less uh, <laughs> likely they think that, that that's going to happen. That's actually, there's a joke there, I'm sure, about crankiness yeah. and as we get older and not liking our family as much. But uh, Dave, thank you very much for that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Simi. It's a fascinating look at caregiving and what's going on in our country right now. That's Dave Krasinski, who's a research associate at the Angus Reid Institute, who was involved in this survey where they took this look and asked people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Uh, who are you looking after? And do you plan to do any caregiving? Do you think you're going to have to? And the stat that he just mentioned there is, what would you do if you could no longer live independently? You probably heard the news over the weekend about what happened up in Squamish that the popular Sea to Sky gondola pretty much collapsed. Now, Squamish RCMP are investigating this. They are treating the collapse as a criminal investigation. They said on Saturday that the gondola's cable appears to have been cut. Obviously, that raises a lot of questions and concerns, right? So they have no timeline at this point that's been given for when it may be repaired, when it may be reopened. Now, that's just not affecting tourism, that's affecting people's weddings because there are so many people who plan their wedding at the top there. They take the gondola up and they have their wedding there. And you're talking dozens of wedding plans over the next few weeks that have been dramatically impacted by this. Now, the company that operates the gondola says that a five centimeter cable snapped and that most of the gondola's 30 cabins fell to the ground. Six of them, though, in the upper and lower stations were unaffected. So the lift manufacturer and the rope maintenance company both have teams that they are sending on site today to do some inspection work on this. But in the meantime, I mean, that's about fixing the gondola. What about all the people who have been impacted by this? One of those people joins us now. Rachel Leith is with us, a wedding planner and owner of Sea to Sky Celebrations. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Hi. When did you first hear about this? Uh, Actually, first thing Saturday morning while I was getting ready to go to our other wedding that day. I was looking at the news and getting ready and and was pretty shocked to read the report by the Squamish chief right that morning did the phone call did your phone start ringing at that point uh it started ringing from uh the news media that day yep um our clients emailed us and and um were the ones that are getting married there coming up, and they were pretty concerned and so on but um yeah so that's <laughs> yeah what what uh, how what kind of an impact does this have on your business Rachel like how many weddings is this going to impact um it's impacting a few coming up in the next couple of months um and then we're hoping that by the time next year rolls around the gondola will be up and running again um but meanwhile we're working with our clients to plan alternative locations for them. Right. Like my heart just broke when I heard about this for the couples who are getting married because you spend so long planning this and then to have something like this happen. So how are they feeling? Yeah, how I mean, are you managing that stress? Um, well, they're, you know, they're heartbroken for sure. Um, and it's been tough talking to them because the reason they booked the, the venue was because it's so beautiful and they had connections with it um but you know part of our role is that that's what we do we find venues for people and and so we're trying to manage that as best we can on our end and and find suitable alternatives okay so then are those suitable alternatives available or are they all getting booked up pretty quickly too uh so far we've got two covered which is great um 
a huge thank you to Whistler Black on, on one of them and Needle Lake Lodge on another of them. Um, so we're still working on others, but um, it, it could be more of a challenge, but we're, we know everyone and have good relationships with them, so yeah. we'll figure it out. <laughs> I hope so. How popular is the gondola? Like even using that as a place, like as a part of the wedding package, how popular is that? Uh, it's been very popular. Um, I mean, obviously, it's proximity to Vancouver. For one, is it's great for Vancouver couples. Um, the scenery is spectacular, and it's it's a very short gondola ride up there, and um, you know it's well worth it. So, lots of scrambling. Then, are places yeah. being understanding about that? Like people booking last minute, deposits, all that kind of stuff. Uh, they are. They've been really great, actually. Um, we're really thankful for everyone who's been so kind. And and uh, and also a lot of venues have just reached out to us anyway, offering help um, under the circumstances. So we really appreciate that, too. Okay, well, good. Listen, good luck with this, Rachel. Hope it goes well. Thank you so much. That is... Appreciate your... Yeah, cool. Well, fingers crossed for all those couples that you're working with. That's Rachel Lythe, a wedding planner and the owner of Sea to Sky Celebrations, having to do some juggling like some other wedding planners are because of what happened to the Sea to Sky gondola on the weekend. It uh, collapsed. I know a lot of people out there are pretty skeptical with the news today because the news says that, hey, it looks like ride hailing is actually coming to BC. I had so many emails from people that can pretty much be summed up as, I'll believe it when I see it. I think a lot of people won't believe it until they're actually in the vehicle that they have hailed online on their smartphone. And then they'll go, huh, look at that. Ride hailing finally arrived here in BC. Because that's how cynical and burned out we all are on this particular issue. Uh, But it does look like we took another pretty big step forward today hearing from Lyft that they will operate here in Metro Vancouver. We're going to hear more on that in a moment, but I have to say, cab drivers that Global News talked to out at the airport this morning, well, they weren't that happy with it. It's not fair, but uh, people want it. I want to make money. So if uh, in taxi I couldn't make money, then I have to move to the solution, right? And that's an excellent point there. It's kind of what Alan said when he emailed me. He said, you know, taxi drivers need to know times change for every industry. Alan said, look how many people lost their jobs when VHS slash DVD went to digital download and Netflix change with the times, Alan says, or be left behind. Well, is that what we are about to see here? We now know that starting on September the 3rd, the Passenger Transportation Board is going to start the process of taking applications for ride hailing services in this province. And officially today, we heard that Lyft will be one of those applications. So let's talk now with their newly appointed BC General Manager, Peter Lukomsky, who joins us now. Peter, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So this is a pretty big decision that Lyft made. What led into it? Well, we really felt that we wanted to bring this level of positive change to British Columbians. Um, we feel that uh, ride sharing and Lyft is really a much needed uh, addition to the transportation mix that we already have in the province, um, and certainly one that uh, the population here has been asking for. Right. So how do you envision the Lyft service looking right now in BC? Well, we're going to uh, roll out Lyft as we have in um, other cities across the United States and in Toronto and Ottawa. Um, at the same way we have, uh, we're, we're recruiting drivers at this point. Um, so that we can deliver a high-quality level of service. Ultimately, um, a transportation network like Lyft counts on two things. It counts on riders who want spontaneous, reliable transportation by just opening up their phones, looking at a map, saying, I want to go from point A to point B, getting that price for that ride up front, um, and then having a car pick them up within a few minutes, drop them off, no cash cash transaction takes place, you don't pull out your credit card, um, it's really a very easy and, and frictionless type of process. But the other side that it counts on is a really healthy supply of drivers. Now, we have this regulation in British Columbia of requiring a Class 4 license. Um, but for anyone who wants to drive for Lyft, we really want to make the driver side frictionless as well. So if anybody out there wants to drive for Lyft, lyft.com slash Vancouver is the place to go and sign up. 
Um, and what we're looking for is we're looking for people who, um, you know, could be retirees, could be uh, students, could be stay-at-home parents who just have a few extra hours in their day, um, who could, you know, have a car and, and have access to it, want to turn on their app for a few hours and make some extra money. So you're not looking for people who are full-time, you're looking for part-time drivers. Um, in about um, about ninety percent of our ninety one percent of our drivers drive fewer than twenty hours a week, and most of them do have full time jobs. Um, but that's that, that you know that said, um, we do have a number of full time drivers as well. So those with existing class four licenses um, are are you know we would we would be happy to take their applications as well. Um, but what we really do is we look to create an, a, a, a driver uh, ecosystem that has. Uh, both part-time and full-time drivers. Right. Do you have an, a minimum number of drivers that uh, should be on the road at all times or a minimum number of drivers that you need to make the service viable? Absolutely. We do have minimum driver uh, numbers of drivers requirements because what we really want to do is deliver a very high-quality service to the riders. Um, riders should be able to get a ride within a few minutes. Um, so what we'll be monitoring after um, we um, we start the driver sign up is just how many drivers we get signed up for the service um, and and how viable we can make the service. And that'll help us determine which communities we're able to launch in and how quickly. Okay, so then you haven't actually decided exactly which communities you'll be launching in. Eventually, we'd really like to bring Lyft to all of British Columbia. Um, but we're going to see how that goes in the uh, driver acquisition side of things right now and see how many drivers uh, we, we register. So if one you, thing I do want to... Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, so if you have a lot of drivers that show interest in, say, the greater Victoria area, will you launch there? Uh, we'll consider each region in British Columbia as it comes up, um, and we'll see where that interest is. Um, ultimately, um, Lower Mainland is our focus at this point, with Metro Vancouver, Abbotsford, and Chilliwack. Those are the areas where we've been working with the municipalities. Um, but we will definitely see where the driver interest is. One of the things I was going to say is, um, you know, a lot of people out there who might be considering driving for Lyft and being part of this um, transportation network might be hesitant because there is a knowledge test. And there is a, um, a, a road test. But one thing that we're going to do at Lyft is we're going to try to make that as frictionless as possible for drivers. So if, if anybody's out there interested, um, we'll help you with that education component. And we'll also provide incentives so that all the additional costs associated with that, that class four license end up being not out of pocket for our loyal drivers. Oh, interesting then. So that your way of encouraging people, plus knowing that it's going to be competitive to try to get this pool of drivers. Absolutely. We're committed to British Columbia. We're committed to this region. Um, and we want everyone to know that we're, we're committed to building up um, a, a really large network of drivers um, so that we can function effectively and provide that high quality level of service. Okay, so then why should people sign up with Lyft as opposed to driving a taxi or Cater or Uber if they decide to come here? What's the difference? Well, um, with with uh, with Lyft, we really have some very strong differentiators against those those others. Um, we are um, uh, first and foremost a transportation network company, um, so ride sharing is part of our transportation mix. We also operate in other regions bike share. We are North America's largest bike share provider. In fact, um, we also operate scooters. And ultimately, we see ourselves as um, a, a provider of a number of different aspects of the transportation mix. But drivers do need to decide who they drive for. Um, we are very, very community focused. We're investing in this local community. We're the uh, rideshare partner for the Canucks. Um, we're choosing a number of charities at this point for our Roundup and Donate um, charity uh, focus. We also have a program we call Wheels for All, which really looks at um, communities which where, where transport is, is an economic and social barrier. We, we help those communities. Um, but also, we're, we're going to be operated locally. I'm building out a team here based in BC, based in Vancouver. I've lived in Vancouver for 15 years, um, and we're going to be operating that team out of Vancouver, not of British Columbia. Right. The other thing that really appeals to, 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 to users of Lyft is that um, we understand that today transportation is a carbon emitter. Um, and until we get to a point where carbon is not emitted as part of our transportation solutions, um, we make every ride carbon neutral. We're one of the largest purchasers of carbon offsets in the world. Right. Do, will drivers have to work for just Lyft or can they work for more than one service? 
We would hope that drivers commit to Lyft um, and and work for us. Um, we would we, we hope that um, the the values that we have and the service that we provide our drivers um, will have them choose Lyft as their only as the only company they drive for. And have you had interest already from drivers? We've absolutely had interest from drivers. We definitely see drivers um, uh, looking at um, not just the website that we've put up today, lift.com slash Vancouver, but just talking to people on the street in our focus groups. Um, we've had a very, very high interest in drivers. I was talking to someone today who was a, um, a parent who essentially said, I've got a couple of extra hours. I'd love to show some people around the city um, and, and um, make some money while I'm doing that. Interesting. Okay. And what's the timeline here then like, Peter? That's a great question. So we're applying for the license um, as soon as we can, um, and uh, we're committing to British Columbia, um, looking at uh, applying for the license on September 3rd. Um, and then after that, we need to be granted the license. We're going to start the driver acquisition process, and then we'll roll it out as soon as we have that uh, critical mass of drivers. Okay, and you don't know yet what that critical mass number is. Um, we're, we, we really look at all the regions we operate in and we decide exactly when critical mass uh, gets hit when, when, we, when we see the number of drivers that we, get, we acquire in a region and really um, have the confidence that we get that, that, um, that high quality level of service uh, for, for, our, for our riders. Okay, and so the area you're talking about is Metro Vancouver, but also the Fraser Valley? Um, we've had great conversations with the municipalities of Abbotsford and Chilliwack in addition to the, the metro uh, Vancouver region. It's our hope that we're able to service all those communities and eventually all of British Columbia. So do you think by the end of the year we'll see some lift cars on the road? I think that could be a pretty good bet. We'll see then. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. That's Peter Lukomsky, who's the newly appointed BC General Manager of Lyft. Hey, do you know what today is? Yeah, besides the fact that it's Monday, this is also World Elephant Day. And it was declared as World Elephant Day back in 2012 as a way to raise awareness about conservation efforts for Asian and African elephants. Now, did you know that since 1980, the number of elephants in Africa has fallen from 1.3 million to just over 400,000? That's a huge drop. Currently, there's an estimated 20,000 elephants that are killed every year just for the ivory in their tusks. And we know that trying to fight against the ivory trade has been a big focus in recent years. And for instance, even anthropologist Jane Goodall, who's known for her work with chimpanzees, well, Dr. Goodall is using this day to highlight the inaction of our government, the Canadian government, when it comes to the future of elephants. Uh, There was an opinion editorial published in the Global Mail where Dr. Goodall calls out Canada, along with Japan, Namibia, and South Africa, for not closing our markets to commercial trade in raw and worked ivory. Other countries have done this. We have not. We wanted to talk more about this. Tessa Vanderkop joins us now with Elephantics. It's a local organization which works to assist global elephant conservation efforts. Tessa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me today. Well, what which countries have done the right thing and banned the ivory trade? Um, you see, I mean, the biggest one I think that really shocked everyone was China because that is also the biggest market for ivory, and. Um, they closed theirs in, um, I believe it was 2017. Um, France, the UK, Britain, which is another huge hub for ivory, just recently passed legislation to, uh, they've enacted actually the, the, the strictest legislation. And now the, now the EU is also looking at it along with, uh, France has closed theirs, Belgium, the Netherlands. So I think there really is. You know, it's really time, I think, for, for Canada to step up to the plate and to and to do the same thing. And why do you think we haven't done that? Um, you know, I think there's probably a number of reasons. I think, um, you know, elephants aren't wandering around in, in our backyard, and I think it's not necessarily a top-of-mind issue. I think that's part of it. I think also, you know, the government would say that they... Um, you know, they subscribe to the letter of the law for their um, obligations under CITES, which is the regulatory framework. But really, I think at this point, we have a petition and we have actually close to 500,000 signatures of Canadians asking the Canadian government to close illegal trade. So, you know, we're hoping that this signals something 
to the government to really, I think, do the right thing and and end it. It's it's a very liquid kind of business. So you know where there's opportunity, it will find its way into markets, as as we already know. And how devastating is this trade that is still going on out there? Well, I mean, at the at the, at the beginning of your uh, of your show, you 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 said the numbers, right? And the fact is, is that we are now in we are in a losing battle. So, you know, not only are elephants, African elephants and Asian elephants, frankly, um, you know, poaching is their more immediate problem, but their longer term problem really is climate change. It's uh, human wildlife conflict. And, you know, it it goes on and on. So I think, you know, um, conservationists and scientists think we probably have 10 to 15 years to um, to give them a chance. So I think it, it's important, I think, for everyone, I think, to do what they, what they can to, to help save, I think, what is a keystone species. What is the price like then in the ivory trade these days? Like, clearly somebody is still buying it. Where is it being sold? It's sold, you know, it is sold everywhere. The United States is still a really big market for it, and it's still a really big market in Asia. So, and then that is, I think, one of the problems. If it closes in China, then, you know, it starts to flow to Japan, which has a very uh, unregulated market, and it will flow to Vietnam. It, it just continues to flow where where there is demand. And I think it's, you know, another good point is that you have to, you have to stop the demand. Uh, another organization called Wild Aid has done a, a great job in those, in those consumer markets and raising awareness, but it's something that you just, you, it needs a sustained effort. And I think um, we still have a, a long way to go. Yeah, when it comes to preventing the poaching of ivory and all of that, what do you think makes the biggest difference? Um, I think it's education. I think it's education for the communities that help facilitate um, uh, poaching because I, it's a lot of there's a lot of poverty in communities. I think that's one problem. I think the other piece is education around the value of um, uh, of elephants to communities and the value of tourism as an alternative. I think there's a lot of corruption down supply lines. And I think it's also just, you know, governments like ours saying, you know what, we don't want to we don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. We're going to close our trade. CITES, which is a governing or organization, has asked for governments to close their trade. And I think it's it, it does demand a global leadership role. I think personally, it's a real opportunity for our Canadian government to really step up and do something and, and take a real leadership role on this issue. Right. So does tourism help? You mentioned tourism there. I know there's lots of places now where you can go to and you can like walk with elephants and you can, you know, look at the elephants up close. Does that help or does that hurt? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think we we feed into that global market. You know, we we in terms of Asian elephants anyways, I mean, we fuel, I think, a lot of um, the Asian elephant um, tourism. And it's the same as in, in Africa, right? I mean, I think you can make choices. I think the issues are very different between African and Asian elephants. But really, I think in terms of African elephants, it is really, because um, I don't think the average Canadian is out buying ivory and would be horrified at the idea. It really is in enacting sort of, you know, legislation to make sure that that illegal ivory can't get through our borders. And then in terms of education for Asian elephants, it's, you know, really, really know where you're going. And if it involves wildlife, understand how that wildlife is being impacted. You have to do some research. But there's so much information out there now that, you know, you can make the right choices. All right. Well, we'll see if people do that. Tessa, listen, thanks for talking to us about this today. Oh, thank you for the thank you for the opportunity. That's Tessa Vanderkop, who's the Director of Strategic Relationships and Advocacy for Elephantics.